Introductions can be uncomfortable. Have you ever had an uncomfortable introduction? How many of you have lived through the mortifyingly uncomfortable situation of meeting your significant other's parents for the first time? That can be uncomfortable. I remember the first time I met the man who is now my father-in-law, Rachel's dad, Fred. Um, We traveled home from Peru, where we were in college, uh, Peru, Nebraska, Um, and I knew I would be meeting Fred on that trip, but our meeting happened more quickly than I thought. I didn't have a chance to get prepared. We were in Superior, Nebraska, driving around, and uh, Rachel said, oh, there's my dad. Let's go say hi. So I'm like, oh man, here it goes. It's going to go down. And now Fred had come to town let you know about uh, my father-in-law. He had come to town from the farm that day to uh, buy his huge St. Bernard an ice cream cone, as one does. That's why he was there. And I was on crutches. I just had ankle surgery, so I had my ankle in this big cast, and I crutched up to Fred and his giant St. Bernard, and I stuck out my hands, and he took my hand, and the first words my father-in-law ever said to me was, how's the knee, Steve? It's like, well, fortunately, my knees are fine. My name's Matt, and my ankle could use some help. But uh, my, my father-in-law, my future father-in-law, Fred, he had learned some things about me, but some of it had gotten sort of lost in the transmission someplace. If you were going to meet someone for the first time, someone that was going to be important to you, what would you want them to know about you ahead of time? Maybe you've uh, created an online profile, whether it's for a Twitter account or online dating or something like that. What, What do you put in stuff like that? What are the things that you want people to know about you before you meet? That's sort of what the book of Romans is. Now, it's not Paul's online profile, but the apostle Paul wrote the Romans to a bunch of people he didn't know. He wanted to know them. He hoped to know them. We'll see that next week. In, uh, right after today's passage ends and what we'll read next time, but this is still at the very beginning of the book of Romans in, in chapter 1, verses 10, 11. Paul says, I always ask in my prayers if perhaps now at last I might succeed in visiting you according to the will of God. Why? Because I long to see you. Paul wanted to go to Rome to meet these people. He didn't know them. You know, we don't even know how the church in Rome got started. We know who it wasn't. It wasn't Paul, and it wasn't any of Paul's close associates. This is the only letter to a church that Paul wrote that he didn't write to a church that either he started or one of his close associates started. He didn't know these folks, but he wanted to. Paul was charged by Jesus with taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which is everyone on earth who's not an Israelite. 
And Paul knew the strategic nature of having a Christian church presence in, in Rome, in the center of the Mediterranean world. So he wants to go there and strengthen these folks. And he wants to convert more people to Christianity so that there's a strong church in Rome. And then toward the end of the book, we'll learn Paul has one more reason for wanting to go to Rome. This is in chapter 15. Paul says this, he'll tell these folks, I have for many years desired to come to you when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you when I pass through Rome, and I hope that you will help me on my journey to Spain after I've enjoyed your company for a while. See, Paul wanted to launch into a Christian missionary journey in Spain, and he wanted Rome to be the home base uh, from where he launched, and he wanted these folks to support him. So that's where Paul is that, oh, one more thing we have to know about Paul that has to do with the purpose of this letter. Paul attracted enemies like worship pastors are attracted to skinny jeans. I mean, it's, it, was a, it was just this visceral attraction. Everywhere Paul went, enemies followed, like literally. Paul would go and start a, a church or, or strengthen a church. And it's like right as he left town, sometimes they didn't even wait for him to leave town, enemies of Paul, enemies of the gospel would come in right behind him. And they always did the same things. They always misrepresented either what Paul taught or the gospel or both. In other words, they would accuse Paul of teaching and believing things he didn't teach and didn't believe or they would try to change the gospel and tell people, you know, what Paul taught's not the real gospel. This is. All right, so here's Paul. He wants to go to Rome. He wants the Christians in Rome to support him on a missionary journey. He wants to strengthen the church in Rome, and he knows from experience that once word gets out that he has a plan for the church in Rome, Enemies and false teachers are going to show up and distort the gospel and distort his views. So here's what Paul does. In about, I don't know, the late 50s AD, like the year 58 or something like that, Paul thinks, I'm going to sit down and write a letter to these people I don't know so that they have in writing what I believe. They have in writing what the real gospel is. Because how are they going to know if I'm worth supporting or not? So I'm going to write them a letter that explains what it means to be a Christian. So that if the false teachers, my enemies, show up later and say, no, that's not what Paul believes. Paul believes this other things. They can hold this up and say, uh-uh. We have right here on uh, ink on page that tells us what Paul believes about what it means to be a Christian. Who needs to be a Christian? Why they need to be a Christian? How one becomes a Christian? What does it mean for my life now that I am a Christian? That's the book of Romans. It's what Paul wanted these folks to know about him and what he stood for and what he believed in before he got to Rome. That's sort of 
Paul's reasoning from a human perspective for writing this, but there was a bigger, sort of higher reason behind all this. Because God is sovereign. And God was directing all of these circumstances to work in just this way. God was, we say it this way, God superimposed his will onto Paul's so that as Paul wrote what he believed about the gospel down, God was carrying him along to write exactly what God wanted written down so that here 2,000 years later, people like us could have this letter in front of us that lets us know who needs to be a Christian. Why does one need to be a Christian? How does one become a Christian? And what does it mean for my life? How should I be different if I am a Christian? That's the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to just take a look at the introduction, the first seven verses of the book of Romans. And just from that much, we're going to be able to feel, I think, sort of the the weightiness of this book. It is the most complete and systematic expression of Christianity that we have still anywhere in the world today, right here in the book of Romans That's what we're going to be walking through. We're going to start this morning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I like to put it on the screen. I'll tell you in the the Bibles under the chair in front of you, page 1125, 1125. If you don't have a Bible, um, turn to page 1125, read through that, have that in your lap this morning, and take that baby home with you. Uh, We will replace it with another one later. This is... The beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and it reads this way. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake or for his glory, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints or Christians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In this ancient time, uh, standard letter writing form called for, for this. When you started a letter, instead of like, you know, we just, we write dear so-and-so if we're writing a letter. And that's just standard form. It's just what you do. Even if the person you're writing to, you do not hold all that dear. Even if you can't stand them, you still address the letter by calling them dear so-and-so. That's just standard format. And we sign who's writing it at the end. Format was different back then. You started by telling the people who you were as the author. And so that's what Paul does. Verse 1, he identifies himself. And Paul identifies himself in four different ways that tell us a lot about Paul um, right from the first verse of the letter. First, he just gives his name. He says this letter is from Paul. 
Um, this lets us know that this is the same guy. If you know the, the, the book of Acts, this is a guy who is also had another name, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, same guy. This is, this is him. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for people to have different names in different contexts. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul or Paulus is his Latin or his Greek name. Uh, because we know Paul was a Roman citizen, he probably also had a fuller, a, a legal Roman name, and we don't know what that might have been, but that's who this is. By the way, just to clear up a misconception, this has nothing to do with this passage or sermon or anything. Jesus didn't rename Saul of Tarsus Paul. Okay, that did, that's not the way that worked. Jesus took a guy named Simon and called him Peter, but Paul always had these two names. And Paul sometimes is called Saul even later uh, after, that, after that time. He, he just had a Hebrew name and a Latin or a, or a Greek name. Paul um, had a previous life. Paul was a, a Jewish man who was fervent for Judaism and therefore hated this new thing called Christianity. We know from the, from the book of Acts, written by his associate Luke, Paul's Previous, he made something of a career, as I, used to, I like to call him Saul the Christian Hunter. Remember Dog the Bounty Hunter, that TV show? This guy was Saul the Christian Hunter. He would travel around and try to arrest Christians and persecute Christians, trying to eradicate Christianity. A funny thing happened on the way to Damascus one time, though. The risen Jesus, Paul told this story over and over and over in his life. He was hunting Christians until he met the risen, glorified Jesus. He'd already been crucified, buried, dead, dead, dead. And suddenly Jesus appeared to Paul in this glorified state that blinded Paul. And Jesus gave, gave Paul no choice but to believe that Jesus was God. And that changed his life. So that's the author. That's the author of this, of this book, Paul. Now he says three things about himself. First, his name, it's Paul. Then Paul calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, your Bible might say a bond servant or a servant, um, but the word is just the word for slave. There were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was incredibly common. And slaves were considered to be the property of the man who owned them. So when, when Paul says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, slave, he's not just saying, I work for Jesus. I try to do the work Jesus wants me to do. Paul calling himself a slave of Christ Jesus, he's saying, I belong to Christ Jesus. He owns me. He paid the price required to buy me. And I belong to him. So he's Paul. He's a slave of Jesus. And then Paul says this. He's a called apostle. These words, I put in italics because they're not really in the Greek. It's fine. He is called to be an apostle. I just want to remind myself to tell you of a, the word play Paul is using here. This word apostle literally means one cent away or one cent off. And so Paul says, I'm one, I am called, I was called to be sent off. I'm a called sent off one. 
That's Paul's life. Paul was called literally by Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said that audibly to Paul. He called to him. And then after Paul was called, Jesus sent him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul has said his name. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's a called apostle. And the last thing he says is, I was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul had a previous life as a Christian hunter. He was called out of that life and Jesus set him apart on a different track in his life. Set apart, why? For the good news that belongs to God. That's Paul. That's our author. That's who's writing and he ought, that's his purpose in life. Now, now that Paul has said this, who he is, what he's about, and he's ended, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to talk for a little bit about this gospel of God. So everything we read now, if we were outlining this, would go under the gospel of God. Paul's going to zero in. I'm set apart for the gospel, so I better tell you some things about this gospel. So we're going to zero in uh, on the gospel. And Paul says a couple of things about the gospel he's set apart for. This gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And this gospel is concerning God's Son. That's a mouthful in those little lines. This is all part of one big sentence. Here's what he said. Paul said, this gospel, this good news, the word gospel just means good, a good message. This gospel I'm set apart to, to deliver and sent out to deliver is not something new we Christians just made up. It's not a new message. It's a very old message. Paul says, this good news I'm set apart for, God has been promising beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When, when Paul talks about the Holy Scriptures, what do we call what Paul called the Holy Scriptures? We call it the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul was writing it. And he's the only one writing probably still by this point. Um... But the good news was talked about, was promised throughout the Old Testament. God had been promising the good news since the very beginning of the bad news. From the very first sin, Adam and Eve's sin, Adam and Eve's sin God gave them one rule. Just don't eat from that tree. You eat from that tree, I'll kill you. And what'd they do? They eat from that tree. God's dying, you will die. You're going to be separated from God forever. That's death. But from that very first sin, God gave some good news. There's going to be a descendant of this woman, Eve, which means a human being, who is going to crush the serpent that deceived Eve, thus reversing the curse that came into the earth through sin. That was the very first promise of a Savior. And throughout the Old Testament, we read hints and clues and more information about this Savior, the good news that, that we as sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God. The bad news is this. You sin, I'll kill you. The good news is there's a way to have life again. And the whole Old Testament says a Savior's coming. Here's what he's going to be like. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. He's going to suffer for the sins of others. 
He's going to be born in Bethlehem. All of these, he's going to be a priest and a prophet and a king. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told over and over and over things about, this is not a new message, but Paul says, now we know that the gospel concerns sinners, focuses on the Son of God. And now that he has said the Son of God, Paul's going to zero in on that Son. In the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. And Paul, I'll give away the ending here. Paul says that Son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ and our King? How do we know? Paul says, well, he's from the right family. Those Old Testament scriptures that promised a Messiah, a Savior, a King, promised the Messiah that would be a descendant of David. Jesus was. We talked about that a lot in the book of Matthew, so I'll save you the story now. But if he wasn't, his enemies would have known and would have pointed that out. The Jews kept great records. So he's from the right family. He was a descendant of David, just with reference to the flesh, meaning he just came from that that human line of David. But then God, verse 4, God let us know that Jesus Christ is the Lord because he resurrected Jesus from the dead. He was appointed the Son of God in power. It's not that Jesus wasn't the Son of God until the resurrection. It's Paul's way of saying God let us know powerfully that Jesus was the gospel when God raised him from the dead. So if we put all of verses 1 through 4 together, Paul has told us who he is, who he belongs to, Jesus, what his purpose in life is. He's been called and set apart to take the gospel to the nations. What gospel? The gospel God had promised all the way through the Old Testament, and it focuses on Jesus Christ. How do we know Jesus is the right one? He came from the right family, and God raised him from the dead. That lets us know he really is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. If you believe in me, you will not perish. The one who believes in me is not judged. The one who does not believe in me is judged already because he did not believe in me. Jesus said all those things. And the resurrection is how God let us know we can trust and believe everything Jesus said. Got it so far? Now, now that Paul has said all of that, he's laid out his identity and his purpose. In verses 5 through 7, Paul tells the Romans, how Paul's identity and Paul's purpose in life should affect the Christians in Rome, and here's where it gets good. Verses 5 through 7, we read this. Through him, that's Jesus, we have received grace, and and I have received my apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name or to his glory. And you Romans are among the ones I am called to minister the gospel to. These are, these are weighty verses that I love. But if we're going to understand these verses, I've got to take a brief time out. 
And I got to ask you one of the big questions of life. And if you don't know the answer to this big question, you're not going to understand verses 5 and 6. And you're probably going to misunderstand the book of Romans. Here's the question. What is the purpose of life? Or we could ask it this way. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? Why does all of this exist? Why why did God create this universe? And in that vast universe, this little tiny planet, and why on that little tiny planet did he put human beings? What, what's the meaning of that? Why do we exist? What's our purpose? All of those questions have the same answer. Do you know what it is? We exist. This all exists to bring glory to God. That's sort of the churchy way of saying, of saying this. You know what that means? God created the universe, this planet, human beings in general, and you specifically to make him look awesome, to glorify himself. He created all of this to demonstrate his power, his majesty, his wisdom, his grace, his mercy. He was always these things from eternity past, but he created our universe and our planet and our race to show how awesome he is. That's why we exist. Did you know that? That's why you exist. Now, how do we do at living lives that fulfill that purpose? How good are we at living a life that shows other people that God is awesome? Not great, right? Not consistent. Why? That's why we were created, and we don't do a good job of fulfilling our created purpose. Why? I have a crowbar in my garage, and you know what? It fulfills its created purpose. You can, like, pry stuff and lever stuff with it every time. The chair you are sitting in, every time you sit in one, it fulfills its created purpose. That projector... Its purpose is to display what what I tell it to. It fulfills its created purpose consistently every time. You and I don't. Why? Somebody give me a one-word answer that answers that question. Why don't you and I fulfill our created purpose? What's the one-word answer? Sin. We're bent. We are broken. We're broken, meaning we can't fulfill the purpose for which we were created. In the same way, if I sawed off two of the legs on that chair, and when you came and sat down, it would no longer fulfill its purpose. It would dump you on the floor. We would all point and laugh, but we would get over it. Right? If that projector was broken, we couldn't see anything up there. It wouldn't fulfill its created purpose. Sin, inside of all of us, keeps us from from doing what we were made to do. We're bent. The real word is we are perverted. That word just means turned away from what's right. We're broken. 
can people fulfill the purpose for which they were created? Paul's going to start in this book and tell us that on our own, the where naturally the way we are born, the answer to that question is no. You can't. You can't be good enough. You can't improve enough. You can't behave enough to where God can look at you and say, that a girl, that a boy. Now you are glorifying me just because of how good you are. That doesn't work. He's going to get a long section and the, end, the point at the end is going to say this. For we, have all, we all fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we use that verse to tell people, without Jesus, you can't go to heaven. And that's true. But what Paul really means is because of sin, we fall short of what we were created to do. Because we were created to bring glory of God, but to bring glory to God as soon as we become sinners and we're born sinners. We fall short of our created purpose. We are broken. So guess what God did? He made good on a promise he made from the very beginning that Paul's been talking about. He just called it the gospel. Good news. You know the gospel entails. Jesus, God's son, He lived a perfect life. He deserved no punishment. And God allowed him to be crushed, crucified, tortured under the wrath of God that we deserve for our brokenness and our sin, right? We do not glorify God. We deserve, because we fall short, we deserve punishment. Jesus absorbed that punishment. And then God said, whoever believes in him will not perish. Paul will say there'll be no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why did God do that? Why? Is it because God was so lonely in heaven and he loved you so much he just couldn't imagine it being in eternity without you? He just, you know, he just could not, he would, just lie. he would not have been good, he would not have been whole if you didn't live with him forever and ever. Nope. God was just fine by himself. He's God. Why did God create you? To glorify him. When you sinned and fell short of that purpose, why did God save you? To glorify him. All of that, just to go through two verses here. Paul says, through Jesus we have received grace. Grace is a gift we don't deserve. And Paul says through him, he's, he's been a sent one. And here's why we have grace and why Paul was made an apostle. To bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles on behalf of his name. It's a way of saying so that he would be glorified. Do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ gives you and me the chance to do? The gospel gives you and me a chance to fulfill our created purpose, which is to make God look 
awesome. Paul says, that will bring about the obedience of faith. Do you know, apart from being saved by Jesus Christ, you cannot be obedient in a meaningful way before God. Do you know that? What did Isaiah say about all our righteous deeds? They're like, somebody knows it. They're like what? Filthy rags. They're like a heap of garbage. I don't know who the best person in here is, but there's somebody in here who has sinned less than everyone else. Please don't raise your hand if you think it's you. Okay? There's someone in here who has done more good things than everyone else. I don't know who he or she is. But I'll tell you this. Compare that person to a holy, righteous, perfect God, and their obedience looks like garbage to God. But Paul's going to tell us in this book about something called justification. It is the miracle of miracles. When someone places his or her faith on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, God not only forgives our sin, that's awesome, he makes us in his eyes perfect. Like perfect, perfect. We look like we've never messed up and we've never failed to do what we should have done. Perfect. Do you know what perfect human beings can do? Glorify God. Sinful human beings cannot do that. Perfect human beings can. We'll never be behavioral, behaviorally perfect on this earth. One day when he glorifies us, we'll be behaviorally perfect. Do you know why? Because it glorifies God. And that's the point of all this. And Paul says, you Romans, you're among these people called to, to belong to Jesus Christ and glorify God in that way. I don't think, I don't think this phrase gets enough run in the book of Romans. Paul, want, he wants to come to Rome to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. I think we could boil down 90% of the errors inside of Christianity into misunderstanding of that right there. What is the obedience of faith? Paul is going to, he's, he's going to describe and explain to the book of Romans what the obedience of faith is. And let me tell you, he's going to hurt everyone's feelings. Okay? <laughs> he just is. There are some, I'll call them legalists. Legalism. Legalism is the idea that I can be more in God's eyes based on my behavior. If I'm good enough, if I do what's right today, God will be proud of me at the end of the day. If I don't do what's right today, God will dislike me at the end of the day. He won't want to be around me. He'll send me away until I feel bad enough and repent enough. And then maybe I can come back into his good graces. Paul is going to blast those ideas out of the water. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he makes you perfect forever in his eyes. Now, 
Paul's also going to hurt some other people's feelings in this book. People that might be licentious or antinomian. People who might believe this way. So you're telling me, Paul, as soon as I believe on Jesus Christ, no matter what I do behaviorally, I'm righteously, sinlessly perfect in the eyes of God. Yep. Well, then that means I can sin however much sin I want to sin. I've got my ticket to heaven, so it no longer matters how I live. Your behavior does not matter at all based on whether or not you are sinlessly, righteously perfect in the eyes of God. Your faith alone does that. But it still matters how you live. Why? Because why were you created? To glorify God. Do you know the thing that's broken inside of us by sin that keeps us from glorifying God? Do you know why? Do you know what what we're bent toward? Glorifying us. We want to be God. God's place is everything should glorify Him. When I'm bent by sin, you know what I want? I want some Matt Maxwell glorification, if I'm honest. I want Matt Maxwell to be comfortable. I want Matt Maxwell to have fun. I want Matt Maxwell to be noticed. I want other people to think I'm awesome and impressive and whatever. But that's not my purpose. And so for those of us who have believed, hey, I'm saved. God will forgive me. I can do whatever I want. You know what Paul will say on multiple occasions in this book about that? May it never be. Because your purpose, your purpose in life is not to go to heaven when you die. Do you know that? Your purpose in life is not to go to heaven when you die. That's better to, than going to hell when you die. Don't get me wrong. But your purpose in life now is the same as it will be then if you are in heaven. is to glorify the one who made you. And Paul calls that the obedience of faith. It's not obedience that gets me anywhere closer to heaven. It's not obedience that makes God love me. God loves me because of Jesus' obedience, not mine. Paul says, Romans, I know you don't know me. I know we've never met. But I'm coming, Lord willing. Because I want to strengthen you. I want you to know what the real gospel really is. I want you to help me spread the gospel to Spain and wherever else the Lord might lead us to bring about the obedience of faith in all Gentiles. Why? Because that's what glorifies God. That was just the first seven verses. That's just the intro. This is the clearest picture of Christianity we have. In 2020, we're going to go through this thing verse by verse by verse. I, want, I hope we learn a lot. I hope you love it. But, I, but don't, let's don't forget where we started. You know what I hope? The same thing Paul hoped. That God would do a work in our hearts. That God would bring about the obedience of faith. In me, first. And in all of us. So that he would be glorified. So that people would look at us 
and not think, man, that guy's a way better person than I am. No. I don't want you to be obedient so other people think you're awesome. I want you to be obedient in a way that people think Jesus Christ is worth following. The obedience that leads to faith. Will you pray that with me for the next year or so that he would do that in us? Let's start right now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us this great letter. Thank you for calling the Apostle Paul, setting him apart and sending him out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And God, I know that, uh, that he was pointed specifically when he wrote this to the church in Rome, but I know you were pointing this even here in Chase County. Paul's desire then matches your desire now that the obedience of faith would come about in people who love Jesus and who are saved by Jesus. As we walk through this book, Lord, I pray that you would uh, shape our minds, that we would believe the right things about Christianity and the gospel and Jesus and one another. But I pray that the result of that would be the obedience of faith. And God, thank you that our obedience does not get us into eternal life that's taken care of at the cross. So help us to hash out our obedience that glorifies you, that makes you look good to a dark world. We love you, Lord. Bless us this year. Bring about the obedience of faith in your people here. In Jesus' name, amen.